for a moment, let's think about this. If Jesus were to write our church a letter, what would he say to us? What would he say to South Point McDonough this morning? If Jesus were to write our church a letter, what would he say? And then maybe we could ask this question as well. If he were to write you a letter this morning, to you individually, if he were to write you a letter this morning, what would Jesus write in that letter? What do you think he would want to say to you? Because here in these seven letters, we have both commendation and condemnation. He's saying, hey, here's what you're doing well to almost all the churches, and to almost all the churches, he says, and here's what you're really doing poorly. Repent of these things. What would he say to you this morning? What would he say to our church this morning? Because each one of these finishes with to the churches. So he's not just speaking to these specific seven churches. He's speaking to the people of God. With that in mind, let's, let's say these words from Psalm chapter 119 together. If you would repeat each one of these lines after me. Open my eyes that I might receive your wonderful word to me. Amen. So we're going to jump right into uh, these letters. So the first one here that we have is the church in Ephesus. And if you have there on your sheet, you see here Ephesus, the first seven verses, is the largest city of these seven. It's the most influential of the seven cities and of the seven churches. And it would have been like we saw last week, the map. This would have been the first one that received a letter from John. In 96 AD, about the year that it was written, there was a population of 225,000 people. And Ephesus was the home of the fertility goddess Artemis. Everybody say Artemis. That's what the Greeks called her, and the Romans called her Diana. She was the embodiment, so they believed, of sexuality, of lust, and even her statue there had many exposed breasts. The church there in Ephesus, it was founded by the Apostle Paul. And you can go back and you can read the book of Acts. It was founded by the Apostle Paul, and then it was nurtured by Aquila and Priscilla. See there in Acts chapter 18. And then after Aquila and Priscilla helped to grow the church, Paul trains and sends Timothy to the church here in Ephesus. And we saw last week he was probably martyred in about 70 AD. After he was martyred, then John the apostle actually goes to the church in Ephesus and becomes the primary teaching pastor there in Ephesus. So as John writes this, he's really familiar with those people. So the church in Ephesus, that's why we know it so well. That's why one of the reasons it's first is because it has a great lineage of leadership and of development. It's also where uh, historically we would see that Jesus' mother Mary attended the church there in Ephesus, which makes sense because as Christ was on the cross, he told John, the one he loved, he said, take care of my mom. So she would have gone with him there to Ephesus. So can you imagine doing a Christmas Eve service with Jesus' mother sitting there in the congregation. Man, you better hope you get that one right. So we have here this church, and here's how, uh, here's how John jumps into this church. To the church in Ephesus, to the angel in Ephesus, he writes this, to the, one, to the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand. So he's sitting here talking about Christ. We already see, and we saw last week, these are the words of him. And who is the him? Jesus, he said, this is, these are the words from you. He says, in, as we see there in verse number one, to the angel of the church, there are a few different options for that word angel. Some would say, and there are three primary options. Some would say, and this is where I would lean with this, by the way, an option, option one being that the angel is a heavenly being. 
So as we imagine, picture angels, a heavenly being. And so each one of these angels was guarding the church in that area. Again, John is saying you're in the middle of a cosmic battle. And here we have these angels who are protecting each one of these churches. And I believe that's true today. The second option would be this is he's writing to one of the pastors there. So this would be a, um, a human messenger. I think that's a really decent option. I think the third option is really interesting as well. He could be saying to the angel, to the spirit there, if he's speaking metaphorically, he could be saying, which again, is actually had the default of how we should read Revelation is with metaphor and imagery. He could be saying to the spirit of the church there. In other words, here's, so our church has a certain spirit about it. People would say, man, when I walk in, it makes me feel this way. Here's the spirit. As you walk into a restaurant, you're like, man, here's the spirit of this. Here's the ethos of this group of people. He could be saying that, but I think he's saying to the supernatural or heavenly being, let me write this to you. In the beginning of verse number two, he says, I notice all the things that you've done well. You don't put up with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and who are not. And then uh, I know you are enduring patiently for my name's sake. So he's saying, here are all the good things that you have about you. You're you're really a, a good church. But notice in verse number four, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. That word abandoned. So it's not like they've lost their first love, but they have left their first love. And then in verse number five, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. And then he says, from that, repent. You've abandoned it. Repent. Turn away from the things that are causing you to see Christ's worth. Remember from whence you came and go back to that. Go back to the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says in verse number six, you have this going for you. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll talk about them in a second. Here's the thing. He says, go back to your first love. When, when my boys, when they say, hey, dad, will you come outside and, and shoot basketball with us? Or will you go downstairs and play ping pong with us? Or can we do this together? Can we go on the nature trail behind our house? They don't want a reluctant agreement from their dad. They're not looking for me to say, okay, if I've got to play with you again, sure, I'll do it because that's what you want me to do is show up. No. My wife doesn't say, hey, can we spend quality time? Yes, babe, if I must. No one would say, man, that's great love. Good thing you showed up with your kids. Good thing you're there with your wife. They want my heart. They want my soul. And Jesus is here saying, I want the deepest part of you. Only in me are you going to find satisfaction when you bring all of yourself. That's the picture of love that he's talking about here. And then he finishes to the churches, and we just mentioned this, and he finishes each one of the sections. Uh, let, let, this, let him hear what he says to the churches. So this is not just for that church. He's saying, I'm telling you this to all the churches. But notice right there after he says that, to the one who conquers. That word conquers there in the Greek is nikeo. Everybody say nikeo. That's where we get our word. Can you think more make what that might sound like? No. no almost. Uh, it's where we get our word Nike. So he's saying to the one there who just does it, who conquers, they're the ones who are gonna receive the crown of life. A couple of things you see there on the sheet that was in your uh, seat when you came in. And I have three of these things, uh, one for each one of these churches. And you can take this with you uh, as you go and discuss this. First, Jesus is calling you from, he's calling you to turn away from the things that make you lose sight of Christ's worth. 
He's calling you to himself to see what your soul really needs. In him is where true joy is found. And here's a question for us to ask this morning. Is your relationship with God more like obeying a bunch of rules or running to the arms of a loving dad? Here he says, remember your first love. Remember how passionate you were when you first heard about me. He's saying that at the church of Ephesus. Secondly, we see here uh, the church in Smyrna, the church in Smyrna. And to the angel in Smyrna, he writes, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now you see there on your sheet, Smyrna was the loveliest of all seven cities. It's called the crown of Asia, the flowers of Asia. Uh, several great writers are born there. It was destroyed in 580 BC and rebuilt in 290 BC. And the city of Smyrna was proud of that resurrection. So if you notice, each one of these introductions that we have here through uh, Revelations two, Revelation 2 and 3, those two chapters, they point to what that city holds to be most valuable. He's not just introducing them just willy-nilly. No, they, they are tied specifically to the identity of that city. So he says, he says here to the angel, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He's saying, you think that your city died and came to life, but actually here, the one who really died and came to life is Jesus Christ. Now, the church in Smyrna is killing it. The church in Smyrna is awesome. He doesn't say anything about change this. It's the one church where he's like, no, no, just keep it up. They're awesome. There's only affirmation and encouragement. But notice in verse number nine where that gets them. It gets them to this little word that we hate so much, but we love to hear about it. I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. That's being taken away from them. Now, this word for tribulation here in the Greek is the word thlipsis. It's really, it's really weird. T-H-L is how we would transliterate that. That word is thlipsis. Everybody say thlipsis. Yeah, that's kind of fun. That word thlipsis, it means affliction or a slow crushing pressure of a great boulder. So he's saying this is, things are going to get worse before they actually get better. So in the midst of that persecution, hold on to me. This word thlipsis is never used of turmoil, of frustrations of life is always used in connection with the coming kingdom of God. And here again, we have this picture of this cosmic battle, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of, of darkness. Thomas Torrance, who was uh, a pastor and a theologian from Edinburgh, Scotland, he said that a church cannot be a true church without causing trouble. The purpose of the church should never be to cause trouble. But if the church is being the church, then we are naturally going to be causing trouble because the kingdom of light is coming at odds with the kingdom of darkness. The, the reign of justice is clashing with the reign of injustice. And the rule of life is clashing with the rule of death. A couple of things if you want to write these. These aren't on the notes there. But the more faithful we are to Jesus, the greater the pressure is going to be. And the reason for that is the enemy is not out to get you if you are already his. He's not out to get you. It's only because of our identity in Christ that the enemy hates us, because the enemy ultimately hates Christ. A theologian, John White, he says, here it is, Satan's supreme object is to hurt Christ and Christ's cause. You personally are of no interest to him. It is only as you relate to Christ that you assume significance in the enemy's eyes. So if, if you believe that Satan is out to get you, it is because you are in Christ. Again, Christ is saying, hold fast to me. Here's what else I want you to see in this passage, is that Jesus is worth dying for. And if he is worth dying for, then he is worth living for. 
Amen? If Jesus is worth dying for, then he is worth living for. So that's the church in Smyrna. Next, we have the church here in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, I think he's right here to this angelic being. Now, if you look here on your sheet, Pergamum, it was, the symbol of the city was a sword. It was built on a high rock. It was what was known as a, a rock throne. Uh, it was famous for its magnificent library. In fact, in that library were 200,000 parchment scrolls. The word parchment is derived from the same word that we have of Pergamum. The city was enamored with words and ideas. They would love to have access to the internet in their pocket. This is the, the kind of, they were obsessed with philosophy, with information, with not being right, or not getting things right, but with being right. They loved information. So he says here to the church in Pergamum, the word of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, the city that values, that holds its symbol as a sword. He's saying, no, the words of Christ are way better. Look in verse number 13. He talks about this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And this idea of Satan's throne that he's talking about there is actually the temple to the Greek god Zeus. And what they would do if someone was sick, physically, emotionally, they would go to this temple where they had trained snakes. And at night you could go to this temple and lay on the ground and these snakes would crawl all over your body in a, in a way to cleanse you. That's what they believed. And so when they talk about here the city of Satan, Satan's throne, this is the temple to Zeus, which it reminds us of the Old Testament when we had the snake being held up uh, by Moses. Remember that? And so here they're saying, yeah, these snakes, in other words, they can be healed with satanic power. And he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This is the city where they worshiped him. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not, not, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. And Antipas, uh, he was a martyr there. And because of his faithful witness, Antipas literally means the technical interpretation that would be anti the world against everyone, against the world. And he was martyred. They, they built a giant metal bull there in, uh, in the temple to Zeus. And they put him inside of this metal bull and they lit a bonfire underneath and roasted Antipas to death. So when he's talking about here holding fast to Christ in the face of anything that happens, he references Antipas for a reason. He's saying it could get really bad. And in the face of that, hold on. Notice verse number 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Go back and read, I think, a Second Kings, awesome story about Balaam's donkey talking to him, who put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So they're vigilant on the front lines, but they're tolerating this Trojan horse in the middle. Notice in verse number 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then, then verse number 16 says, therefore repent. What the Nicolaitans and what Balaam, what they were teaching was, here's the, here's the word of God, and here's what the culture teaches, and just pick one. It's okay. You can say you believe in God, and you can believe what the culture teaches, and if this way is easier, then live according to that. And that's what some in the church were turning toward. And he says, no, there is only one authority. Sin always promises and, and for a moment, it looks really good. And for a moment, it actually satisfies. It does. But if we see there on the notes that I put, the, the one thing that he's telling you is that sin never truly satisfies. It never satisfi satisfies for that long. It is never lasting. It is never a true satisfaction. He's saying here, don't give in to what looks really good, looks really attractive, refreshing, rewarding. It will not satisfy you. He says, therefore, repent. And if you don't, 
If you don't repent, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to come at you and make war. I'm going to slaughter you. That's what he's saying. There was a commercial that aired this past week at the Super Bowl. You've, you've seen this. Jesus uh, gets us. And at the end of that, he's saying, uh, the end of the, the, uh, of the ad, it says, Jesus did not come to make hate. He is only here to love. So come however you are. And that is true. Come however you are because Christ will redeem you. And if you do not come to him in humility and in faith, then he hates you. So it's not, if, if, you are, if you are not his, if you are part of the enemy's camp, if you never repent of your sin, you will experience the judgment and wrath of God. Those are the options. Experience, feel his wrath, his hate for sinfulness and for who you are, or repent. Those are the options that he's talking about here. He will make war at you uh, against them. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Again, he who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I think this hidden manna here, there are actually uh, several different options for this. I think he's talking about the marriage supper of the lamb. I think he's saying, don't find your satisfaction in this world. Look to heaven. He says, I'm gonna give that person, so uh, there's the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. There are 11 different options for what, what this white stone means. Um, so, and none of the commentators agree. They're like, yeah, it's gotta be one of these three things. It gotta be, you know, salvation depends on it. Another commentator, it's gotta be one of these four things. So you add them all up and there's like 11 different options. But I think here what he's saying is you receive this white stone as an admission ticket. You're given a new identity to be with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb forever. It could be one of the other options. That's okay. We don't really know. He doesn't tell us. But what he does say is your name is written on this stone, and you will receive it. So that's the church there in Pergamum. The next church that we have is the church of Thyatira. Thyatira. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, he writes this. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, in Thyatira, it's the center for the worship of Apollo, which is the God of light. Notice how John begins this right here. He's talking about the, the eyes of God, who are like fire. He, and uh, the, the church there in Thyatira, uh, or the, the city of Thyatira, it was known also for the worship of Helios. Everybody say Helios. So we have these two gods, Apollo, who you've probably heard of, and Helios, this god of sun. And Thyatira was a, a great, prosperous commercial center. And as you read through the church in Thyatira, it's probably the most difficult one to interpret. It's kind of strange. So as we see here in the beginning of verse number uh, 19, he says, I know your works. In other words, it, he says, I know your works. He has eyes like a flame of fire. You cannot hide or you cannot hide from or fool the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees who you really are. There's no fooling him. There's no hiding from him. I know your works. I know that your later works exceed the first. But verse number 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now we name our, our kids certain things. We name our dogs certain things. You would only name a cat Jezebel because here he's not talking about anything that's positive in any sense of the word. Here he says, you tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She's seducing my servants. She's practicing sexual immorality, eating food sacrificed to idols. And if you go back and look at Jezebel, again, a reference from the Old Testament, hundreds of these from the Old Testament, Jezebel argued that you could worship Baal, this God we know him in the South as Baal, okay? Baal, uh, she said you could worship Baal alongside of Yahweh. And here's what Jesus calls it in verse number two. 
The teachings of the woman Jezebel, behold, verse, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her will, will I throw into great tribulation until they repent of her works. So here Jesus says this spiritual adultery saying, I love you, I have a relationship with you, Yahweh, and I want to have a relationship and love and be with this other entity. He calls that spiritual idolatry. Spiritual idolatry always leads to spiritual sickness is what he says here, which always leads to spiritual death. Notice in verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. And all uh, let me, uh, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. He's not saying, I'm going to just look at your actions. He says, I know your mind and your heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, uh, let's go with, um, let me find, uh, let's see, Jessica. Uh, your, um, let's go with your favorite, your favorite music style. Your favorite genre is, uh, is country music. Uh, your favorite food to eat of all time, we're going to go with Jamaican. And your favorite movie, I'm guessing it's uh, Dirty Dancing. All right, now you tell me, you tell me what your, what your actual favorite music genre is. 90s pop, okay. So I said country, you said 90s pop. All right, I think I'm right on that one. Okay, your favorite, your favorite type of food. I said Jamaican. Sushi, that's close. It's close enough. Okay, we'll call that Jamaican. And then lastly, what was your favorite movie of all time? Tombstone. All right, so y'all heard her favorites there right there, but let me tell you what Jessica doesn't know about herself is that in all actuality, her favorite type of food to eat is Jamaican food. Her favorite movie to watch is Dirty Dancing. What was the first thing? Her, her favorite music genre is country music. And if I said, that's actually, what I said was actually true about Jessica, you'd be like, no, she just said something completely different. We do the same thing with God. We have the word of God and he says, here's who I am. And we say, yeah, that's really interesting, God, but here's how I feel about it. Here's actually what I think about it. And since I think it and since I feel it, I'm going to hold to that instead. And here Jesus says, no, I'm searching your mind and your heart. You can't be right. I tell you that sex outside of marriage is wrong. You don't do that just because you're in love. I tell you that divorce should hardly ever, I hate divorce. Yeah, but it's so much easier. I tell you, you shouldn't be cheating on your taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we're like, yeah, but there's no way you like the American government either. I'm not going to claim all of my income. He says, no, it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you think. I know your mind and your heart. Jeff Bjork, uh, who's a professor, he says this. Thank you. Compartmentalization. This is the idea that here's, here's how I live on Sundays. It's different than the way I live the rest of the week. Compartmentalization is the means by which we maintain the illusion of the both and. In other words, I can be both holy on Sunday and allow poison into my head on Monday because it is entertainment or whatever. Here he says, I know your heart and your mind. Don't be two-faced. Verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He doesn't make excuses for sin. He calls it out for what it is. Chapter three, 
And I would encourage you, by the way, I don't, I'm not hitting all of these questions, what Christ is calling you from, what he's calling you to, things to ask yourself, but I would encourage you to take those uh, with you this afternoon. Chapter three, we have to the angel of the church in Sardis, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, Sardis is not what the unbelieving world would call a dead church. No, this was a very active church. They had lots of events, lots of committees. They could strategize well. They were well organized. It was the largest of the seven churches, the most attended. It was the wealthiest. And the church in Sardis was not under pressure. He does not tell them to hoopamone, to persevere, to hold up under pressure. And here's why. You have it there on your sheet. Why? Because the church had silently accommodated itself to the injustice and immorality of the city. They had accommodated itself. Notice in verses one and two, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The exact opposite. This is like a Christmas tree that looks beautiful. It's decorated. It, it even maybe smells nice, but it is rotting. It is dying on the inside. It's been cut off from its life source. So what would other people say about your relationship with Christ? If other people were writing a letter to you about your relationship with Christ, what would they say about your relationship with Christ? And then what would God say about your relationship with him? How would those two things line up? And maybe more importantly, how would they differ? Because for all of the beehive of spiritual activity here, there was no evangelism taking place. That's why he says, verse number two, wake up, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The purpose of a, of a lampstand is to bring light, to burn in the darkness. And here they've just completely forsaken that. Yeah, we're staying really busy, but none of what they're doing is actually enabled or empowered with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse number four. I like this verse. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. All right. There weren't many commentators who wanted to deep dive into this one. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Here's what he's saying. You think you have it all together. You look really good on the outside. In reality, you've pooped your pants and you think that nobody's going to notice. That's what he's, you've soiled your garments and you're walking around. Yeah, I'm doing great. It's good to see you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, brother. What's that smell? <laughs> Don't worry about this. It's great. Yeah, praise Jesus. And then they, you, they walk away. And you're like, hey, hey, he, no, no, it's okay. Bless him, bless him. That's what he's saying. You think you've got it all together and you don't. Maybe this morning you're okay with associating with the church. Maybe you're good with wearing Christian t-shirts. Maybe you love eating at Chick-fil-A because that's the closest to Jesus. But you avoid confession and surrender. He says, that's not life. He says, that's dead. There's nothing inside of you. If Jesus were to take his spirit away from your life, would it make any difference at all? If you did not have the spirit empowering you this coming week, would it make any difference than how you lived this past week? That question, by the way, that stings. That stings me. Because if we were alive in Jesus, then the removal of his spirit is devastating. The next church, the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You see there on your sheet, there were, there were so many temples in the city that the other cities called Philadelphia, little Athens. 
It was situated on the edge of an active volcanic area, which had its pros and cons. Pros, it had rich, fertile soil, had nice hot springs. Cons, it was in constant danger from earthquakes, in such constant danger that many people actually lived outside of the city of Philadelphia. They would come in during the day, do their work, do their business. Then they would leave the city and go somewhere else to actually live because the city was in such turmoil all the time. And notice here what Jesus says in verse number seven. The words of the Holy One, the, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. In other words, he's saying this, I am your security. I am an unshakable foundation. I'm the one who holds the keys and all of your going and your coming, your fleeing and your returning. I remain the same. My presence with you will not be disturbed by geological, economic, or political disorder. So he's saying, rest in me, church. Even though life is crazy on the outside, there is a spiritual foundation. Verse number eight, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. This was a really small church. That's what he's saying there. I know you're but a small church. You have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The open door that he's talking about here is there is an opportunity for salvation. Not just for you. He's talking to the church, to those who are already in Christ. He's saying there is an open door. So while the rest of the world seems like it's in turmoil, go and with your little power, What it seems like on the outside, you are empowered with the Holy Spirit. Go and tell those around you about who Christ is and what he has done. Go evangelize the lost. That's what he's saying here. Persecution is no reason to hunker down. Persecution is no reason to begin freaking out. It's no time to play it safe. He says the door is open now. One day it's going to be shut. And the opportunity for those around you to respond to Christ is going to be over. Go through the door. Call out to them. Verse number nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Notice how he, com- he compares these, the, syn- the synagogue of Satan. He says, the synagogue of Satan, those who call themselves Jews, but are not, they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Here's what the Jews were doing is they were turning these Christians over to the authorities and they were bringing more persecution to the church in what the rest of the book calls true Israel. The Jews were saying, can you believe what the Christians are doing? Romans, go get them. We're gonna find them for you. This small church, they're enduring great persecution. And so we had that in verse number nine and then verse number 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. So he says, no matter what happens here, they're trying to throw you in jail. They're trying to get you killed. He says, endure that. Then he finishes the rest of that verse. And I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And Christ told us in John chapter 16, verse 33, you can write that down. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble because you are mine, because you are in me. But hold fast. In the midst of physical tribulation, trials, when everything seems shaky, there is spiritual security that we can find in Christ. Verse number 12, and as a reminder, he says this, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. In other words, if you have a temple, it needs the pillars for it to support itself. If you remove a temple, sorry, a pillar, the temple crumbles. He's saying you are a load-bearing wall in this temple called the family of God. 
He's saying you are secure. You're mine. Once you're there, there is a permanence. You cannot take out the load-bearing wall and the structure remain okay. This is a permanent identity that we have in Christ. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. You have a new name, a new identity. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. It's new, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He says, you have a new identity in Christ and you are stable and secure, even in the midst of these crazy earthquakes that are happening. Then lastly, this is probably the one that, you're, that we're most familiar with. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, he writes these words, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Laodicea, you see there on your sheet, it is situated between these two cities, Colossae and Hierapolis. In Colossae, that's where uh, the, the book of Colossians was written to the church there, so uh, we're familiar with that. In Colossae, that's where they had cold water that was piped into Laodicea. And in Hierapolis, they had these great warm springs. And that water was also, it was piped into Laodicea as well. By the time it got to Laodicea, it was neither hot nor cold any longer. It had become lukewarm because it took so long to get there. The other thing you see here is Laodicea. It was known for its many banks. It had tons of money. In fact, at one point, the city was destroyed, and the Roman government said, hey, we want to help you uh, rebuild the city. Do you want our money? And they were like, no, nah, we got plenty of money. We don't need your help. It was also known for a clothing industry. It produced this beautiful black wool that all of the known world knew about. And there was an excellent medical school there in Laodicea, and they had this eye salve that um, they were able to, to make from these rocks, and they would grind it up, and it cured people's um, myopia. So the city of Laodicea was known by all of these things. It was a very popular city, but notice what he says here. Verse number 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. At least then you would be useful. Maybe you've heard this passage preached before. You've probably heard a couple of folks butcher this passage. Um, and, and we think, hey, either be a hot Christian or just reject Jesus altogether. Don't be somewhere in the middle. That's not what he's saying. He's saying be good for something. Either be hot or be cold. If you're, if you're good for neither, if you're lukewarm, here's what he says. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The nature of lukewarmness is to be lukewarm. If your house is set at a comfortable temperature, you're like, oh, it's comfortable. I'm neither cold nor hot. It's not until you realize, ooh, it's a little chilly and turn the heat on. Oh, man, I'm, I'm burning up hot. I got to turn some AC on. But lukewarm is like, oh, you don't even think about it. But Jesus says, I feel sick when I think about your church. I love hot coffee. I love cold coffee. You let either one of those just sit in a room for a couple of hours, it becomes nasty coffee. So he's saying, lukewarm, it's, it's not good for anything. G. Campbell Morgan, uh, a pastor, theologian in the beginning of the 20th century, great theologian, he, uh, he followed uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, there at Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he helped disciple D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So if neither one of those names, you're like, I don't know what that means, just pretty sick resume. Here's what he says lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. Yeah, I, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in you, but my faith adds nothing. It produces 
nothing. There is no love. I've lost my first love. Hey, I'm really busy on the outside, but there's no fervor. There's no passion for Jesus. He, he calls that blasphemy. Notice in verse number 17, for you say, I am rich. And they would. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's what Augustine says. He said, the saying, I have everything. That's what they're saying right here. I have everything is a terrible saying when everything does not include the living God. There, he, the, the, the church here later see it. I am rich. I have prospered. I have arrived. We have all of this money. We have all of these resources. We have all of this clothing. We have all of this medicine. We are in need of nothing. He says, those pitiful fools. But notice in verse number 17, the words here are stern, but they're not angry. So we think Jesus is sitting there, can you believe this? You're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you don't know how much you don't have. In Greek, every single one of these words ends with this OS sound, this "os," which means the one who is saying it is saying it with compassion. Let's read that again. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What does Jesus do with this wretched church? He moves toward them. He wants them to experience life, not be nauseating to himself and to those around him. And that's why in verse number 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And that's why he says right there, back in verse 17, he says, you don't realize this. In other words, you don't know. The city they claimed to be able to cure myopia, myopia, they didn't even realize their spiritual blindness. He says, you don't even know in what desperate need of me you are. And then in verse 18, he says, here, come to me. This is from me. I have true riches. I have clothing that covers shame. I am the one that can give you eyes to see. All you must do is admit your need and you get Jesus. What love, what compassion we see these words here. Notice in verse number 19. Why does he say this? Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Often when we see the word love, we, and it's talking about the love of Christ, we, we're, we think it's about agape love, and often it is. The word here in the Greek is not agape, it's unconditional love. It's actually the word phileo. Phileo, which is this romantic, essential type of love between a married couple. Here he says, I love you with this type of love. Not just, I love you almost because I have to, this unconditional love, which he also has for his people, but he's saying, I love you. I want to embrace you. I want to be one with you. I love you relationally so much that I'm calling you to life. He feels this love for them. Such grace. The notice of verse number 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, again, we've heard this passage, and it's, it, it goes out to those. If you don't know Jesus, he's standing there at the door of your, of your heart and knocking. What, where is this letter written? It's written to the church and where? 
Laodicea. It's written, it's written to the, the what in Laodicea? The church, the people of God. So is this passage talking about those who are unsaved? No. He, he's not, it's not written, hey, Jesus standing at the door of your heart and knocking you unsaved people. No, he's, he's saying, he's, he's writing to believers. I'm, I'm standing at the door and knocking to the heart of a believer. Notice what he says, though. I say at the door, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Where we started was, you make me sick and I want to spit you out of my mouth. But if you will return to me and open the door of your heart, I'm right here. I'm so close. I want to be with you. I want to eat with you. The most intimate almost, of things that we can experience as individuals is eating food together. And as they would have known it, this is creating a covenant between two people. That's why d during business deals, we eat. At weddings, we eat. On a first date, we eat. After a funeral, we eat. We eat. In Genesis chapter 3, what happened in the garden? When sin into the world, they were eating. What's going to happen in the future? At the marriage supper of the land, we're going to eat. All throughout the Old Testament, we have feasts where we eat. In the New Testament, we have Jesus right before he goes back up and right before he goes to the cross. We have him with his disciples. What are they doing? What are we going to do in just a few minutes? We're going to eat. The symbol of eating is important. It's saying, I'm one with the person that I'm eating with. So before he says, when you were rejecting me, living for yourself, I want to spit you out. You're nasty. He says, but if you will open the door, I'll come back in. I want to dine with you. I want, to, I want you to experience my love and the intimacy that I, that I long for you to have. Here in this passage, in these set of verses, there is no greater threat. But friend, in Christ, there is no greater promise. So maybe this morning, as you sit here, maybe you never have turned that handle of your heart. Maybe you never have surrendered to Christ. Maybe you say, man, I've never fallen upon the mercy of Christ. This morning, he is calling your name. And he is pleading with you to surrender. To say, I don't have it all together. I can't figure it out. I don't have everything I need for life. He lived for you perfectly. He died for you, the death that you deserve because of your sinfulness, because of your separation. And now we can be made one together with Christ by saying, Jesus, you are all that I need. I believe that you paid the penalty for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe you are who you say you are. And I believe you can make me who you say that I am. Maybe secondly, you opened the door to your heart some time ago, but you've become lukewarm and complacent. That's the church that he's talking about here. I would plead with you to go and open the door. Christ, come back in, fill me. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be filled with your presence, with your love. Maybe this morning you would say you're in that third category. You opened the door to Christ, but you only let him in your living room. He's, he's only there in, he's only Lord of part of your life. And you've compartmentalized him to Sundays and maybe life group night and maybe a little bit of other time during the week. Friend, the alpha and the omega, the amen, the faithful and the true, he will only be satisfied when he has complete access to every room of your heart, every room of your life, every room that's called family, sexuality, the room called money, the room called past, the room of future, the room of your dreams, the room of your fears, the room of your anger, the room of your depression, the room called wounded. My question to you this morning is, will you open the door and let him in? today. Father, thank you for your word. Your word that is true. Your grace that is 
unfathomable to us. Father, whatever our story is, whatever that letter says about us today, we thank you that you are making all things new. And I pray even now in our midst, in our hearts and our lives, I pray that you would make us new, that you would renew us. Even the things that we think are, are really good pursuits, and maybe they are, if they're done for selfish or vain reasons, if we think that we can find life in our doing rather than our being, I pray that you reveal those areas to us, that we wouldn't just be spiritual busybodies, but that we'd be living in and from and through your power, in and from and through your presence. That is where life is found and you make it available to us today. We don't have to live for life, but we get to live from life. We plead your presence and your grace. It's in Christ's name, amen.